0: It's the Skinny Podcast,
1: only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly Pope re-edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Broering. It's presented, as always, by Ryan Kiefer of Prime Lending. Each week, we look at sports topics of local interest. We've got a national topic this week. Occasionally, we do. Uh, we're going to talk some Bengals, some college basketball. We don't have a gambling segment this week. There's Stuff to gamble on. I made a few wagers on a golf tournament this weekend, but we're not going to bore people with that. We'll do a lot of stuff next week leading up to the Super Bowl. And of course, the segment you can ask me a question on any topic, sports or otherwise, just go to Twitter, do the hashtag AskSkinnyAnythingRick. You and I are doing this podcast, crossing our fingers that our power doesn't go out where we are as the, the sleet and freezing rain come down all around us. Um, we're kind of in a winter wonderland at the moment, but uh, it is what it is. And we're kind of in that week in between the Super Bowl where... We still got to talk to these guys. And really, I'm not sure if there's a whole lot of fresh storylines out there.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny because you get to this point where it's like it's the biggest thing in Cincinnati sports, maybe in my entire lifetime. The Bengals are in the Super Bowl. What a great time to be talking about sports in Cincinnati. And then you try to come up with topics for a show like this. And you think not a ton of ways to hit this that
1: haven't been done already. So, Or, or that we're not going to do next week when we start talking a little bit more intensely about the matchup. I mean, it's too early right. for that, in my opinion.
0: Exactly, and I I would agree. We'll break down the game in full detail next week. We'll get into all of our bets and everything that we're going to put money on for that game. But for right now, I I think when I looked back at the win over the Chiefs, Skinny, the thing that kept coming back to me was how good Lou Anarumo and his defense were in that game, particularly in the second half. And it, it made me kind of wonder, in spite of the Bengals ranking 17th in points allowed, 26th in passing yards allowed, 19th in DVOA, which if you don't know what it is, go look it up, kids. It's a big football guy term. They have twice defeated Patrick Holmes in the past month. Yep. They gave up 19 points to the Raiders in the wildcard round, 16 to the Titans in the divisional round. They've forced seven turnovers in the playoffs. Is this Bengals defense lucky are they confusing opponents with smoke and mirrors right now? And Lou is like the greatest defensive coordinator ever. Or are they just vastly improved since maybe the midpoint or even later in the season? And they are now incredibly underrated.
1: You know, I, I, I'll i go back to to, to training camp. I, I thought this defense had a chance to be really good, statistically better than what they are. But the one place, the, the places they're really good is... think they're good in situational football that if you're up a couple of touchdowns, they're going to let you drive the field and and use six or seven minutes off the clock. And that does hurt your stats and it hurts the points allowed, but, but it also, it's playing situational football and they're, they're really good situationally in the red zone. I mean, they're really good when teams get down in there of, of more, not more times than not, but, but more times than most teams limiting the other team to a, to a field goal and not giving up seven. And for when you have an offense like the Bengals have, when you're trading your seven for their three, a couple of different times starts to add up a little bit and, and then you can play more situational football um, on that first point. Yeah, what does that say to you? Um, that's a good question. I, I think it, it it says to me that um, that they're willing to give up certain things between the 20s and 30s but that they're good enough when the field gets condensed to stop you. Um, yeah. I mean, it shows, it, listen, they don't have a lockdown corner, right? Shadoby is a really good player. Eli Apples played better as a year has gone along, and I love Mike Hilton as a slot corner. I think he's great. Jesse Bates didn't have a good year. Now, part of the playoffs is Jesse Bates has had a really good playoffs, so that, that that's helped That The guy who last year was the best safety in the NFL, according to PFF, who didn't play well during the year, has elevated his game significantly in the playoffs. You know, Von Bell is not a great coverage safety. He's a nice player and he's a veteran leader and he's a winner and all those things in the linebackers. I like Logan Wilson. He's not in the Pro Bowl conversation for a reason. I like Jermaine Pratt. He's nowhere near close to that. And, and on the defensive front, that group's been pretty good. Um, and obviously Trey Hendrickson is a difference maker and that helps that you have one guy, but you don't have a ton of, you don't have seven Pro Bowlers on that defense. Pro Bowl guys, you got, got a couple of really good players, um, a couple of good veterans who know how to do things the right way, but it's, it's not an, vastly talented group, but I think it is a group that it's pieces that Lou Anarumo finally got to do some things that he wants to get done. And I think you, you saw that with the versatility of, of Russian three dropping eight and using Sam Hubbard as a spy and um really forcing Patrick Mahomes to, to be impatient. And it was kind of a roll of the dice. It was, Hey, we think you're going to do the same thing you did last time, which is you're going to stop running the ball. And Pat's going to not like to, to, to swing it out to number one. And he's not going to like to throw it for seven yards to number 87, I, that's a roll of the dice because if Pat Mahomes had done that and Andy Reid had done that, it might have been lights out for the Bengals. Instead, it was um, Pat getting impatient. They stopped running it consistently. And voila, that plan continued to evolve as that game went along. So I think there's a little bit of all of it. I've always thought a lot. I, you, know, you know me on this. I'm not just saying this now because I've said along. long. I, I think Luana Rumo is a good coordinator. Uh, he just was dealt a terrible stack of, of players the last couple of years. Finally got his guys. And he's. you can see the scheme is It's pretty good. It doesn't have to be great because your offense has at times been great. It just has to be good enough. And I think it is good enough.
0: Well, and that's to me, when you talk about they're good in certain situations, better situationally than they are overall, they're great in the red zone. Things like that. To me, I would point to coaching more than anything when it comes to that. When you are good when it matters most and you're able to scheme your way around things, even though you don't typically have the best talent on the field that's usually a sign of pretty good coaching I would have to imagine and this past game against the Chiefs maybe is the best example of that I mean you already talked about them going to dropping eight defenders in coverage in the second half and overtime so frequently I the the PFF stats or whoever random came out and they went to it about 45 percent of the pass plays in the second half so almost half the time right they were dropping eight guys back there in coverage and you're right. I mean, it, it's to some extent, it's a little bit of a risk. You would think you're le- you're leaving a lot of things open for that Chiefs offense. But it also really seemed to screw Pat Mahomes up and had him confused at what he was looking at. Yeah, is and, what And, it and, seemed and, and, and
1: again, being impatient, not taking that little swing pass or that check down or that seven yard route of trying to go. All right, I got a deep cross. Or I'm going to wait for him because I've got time because we're only rushing three guys. I got plenty of time. And that's great, but you had nowhere to throw the football unless you were going to check it down. And he just didn't. I think some of it is the greatness of Pat Mahomes backfired on him. You know, with that arm talent and being able to sling it anywhere. And I think there was no more better example of that than than the overtime pass downfield to Tyree Kill. You know, the guy's bracketed. I mean, if if he makes the play there, kudos to Tyree Kill. But chances were that he wasn't going to make that play, and and so. I think that showed the impatience of Patrick Mahomes. And, and Lou explained the coverage. It's a, it's a coverage they use where Mike Hilton starts on Hill, passed him off to, to, to Jesse Bates. Von Bell then comes over to help, and you can see that's exactly how it was. And Jesse gets a hand in. A little lucky tip. I think we'll agree with that, that it stayed up in the air and Von Bell was in the right place at the right time. But um, that, that just showed the confusion. I mean, Rick, it is really hard for me to believe. If I were to tell you, I'm going to give you 10 possessions for Patrick Mahomes in a game. 10 possessions. How many points do you think that, that Kansas City would score in 10 possessions of most games? I'm giving you 10 possessions.
0: I mean, you're thinking 42-ish? Yeah, at least? sure,
1: sure. I was going to say, I'd give five touchdowns at the very minimum. That's 35 and, you know, a couple of field goals. So yes, in the 40s, right? Yeah. 10 possessions in the last two seconds, half, second halves, six points. I think it also speaks to this. Everybody always talks about halftime adjustments. Everybody loves that whole, oh, didn't make the halftime. Adjust-. It's not just halftime adjustments. It's series to series. If you're not, then you're a fool. And I think this also shows that as the game evolved and you start to figure out what they're doing, I think this is coaching as well, and it's the whole staff, of going, all right, they're doing this and this, we need to take away that and that, let's try this, let's try that. And, and listen, you, you may not do that against you know pedestrian offenses, but against offenses offense like this, you got to start to figure out, all right, what can we take away, what can we not, what can we limit, what can we not? And you saw that as the game went along both times of they kind of figured out, all right, here's what we think we can do to stop this guy or at least slow them, and they didn't just slow them, they stopped them. And I think you're right, that goes back to the coaching staff. Good for them, and and the players for executing. I mean, uh, the Zach explained that that uh, end of the half play I thought really well on Monday when we talked to him, and I wrote a little bit about it, because it really, he said that was the play that changed everything around. And it wasn't just because of the stop, but it was what the stop showed the players and show what they were capable. And he said it started off with the initial route, Cheeto taking uh, and rerouting his guy away. That was where Pat, I, I, and he didn't say who the receiver was. And honestly, I'd have to go back and look, but rerouting that receiver away. That was look one. And then when look two came, he said, Jesse got in his vision. All right. So that's look two. By this time. Now all the looks are basically taken away. And his last one is the Tyree killing the flat. There's two guys there to make the tackle. And he said, it got everybody to calm down, realize if you get your eyes, right, you're going to be fine. And then Lou, when we talked to him on Tuesday, said, then I thought the biggest series was the first of the second half when we stopped them, and that took the end of the first half stop to the second half stop and gave our guys a lot of confidence. And I think that one play just showed to everybody, just calm down, do your job, do it the best you can, and we're going to have a chance to keep grinding back. And then – then the pressure started to get to Pat Mahomes a little bit. As I mentioned, then he started to not be patient. Andy Reid started to not be patient and get away from the run game. And it was a perfect storm of things again. And that, you know, that that's kind of how this postseason's been. I mean, this is, listen, Rick, this has not been a pretty postseason for any stretch for the Bengals. All three games, right? There were a lot of ugly stretches. But, you know, that's, it, it doesn't matter how ugly or how pretty it is. You can lose pretty and you can win ugly. Give me win ugly and be in the Super Bowl if, if, if it's me.
0: Yeah, that stop right before the end of the first half, going back and listening to Zach Taylor talk about it and some of the players and and other coaches made me want to go back and watch it again and and really see what they were talking about. And I think one thing that was underrated from that series was not just the final play where everything plays out perfectly like you just laid out and Eli Apple took like the perfect route of person. I mean, because. Tyreek Hill went in motion to start that play. So E-Rot, Eli Apple's running a, across the back of the defense, basically with him stride for stride, and then coming downhill and kind of taking the perfect angle as to not give him any lane to shoot into the end zone. Cause he knew right. he had a defensive end coming out to help him. But on the play before that, the chiefs ran a little pick play in the end zone that is very successful for them. And the Bengals were, perfectly prepared for it. They played it like a a basketball team switching on a ball screen coverage. They just switched it. They didn't even mess with the screen or or getting, you know, uh, dragged by any of that mesh. They just said, nope, if they come and try to do any of that, you take him and I got him and we're good. The communication was perfect. They did it seamlessly and they were able to deflect the pass and uh, get you to that second down spot where they they held up. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of things that the, the more you watch, and and by the way, it, we're going off your first point there that, that you started out with that, you know, they're better situationally and they're better in the red zone. And to me, that is more coaching than anything else. But I do think there's a part of this too, where the Bengals talent is better than they get credit for. And oh, like,
1: yes, yeah,
0: the, I'm noting that the, the two guys that I think really stand out to me, like everyone talks about Jesse Bates and he really has come on again at the end of the season. He's been tackling much better all year if you look at his uh, tackle percentages and all that type of stuff. So he, he's very good, and, he, and I do think he is a rising star in this league. for well, and, he's, this and,
1: he, and he's had impact plays on all three playoff wins. He, I mean, he the, definitely has. He's three. come up yeah. big in
0: the playoffs. But there are two other guys to me that have really stood out all season long, but particularly in the playoffs when the money is made and everything's really on the line. This is where you need to show up. And there's two guys that really have one is Trey Hendrickson, who, I mean, we've talked about all year, what a difference he has made, but I mean, this dude has posted 14 sacks, 27 quarterback hits, 12 tackles for a loss. And he's forced three fumbles.
1: And and he, and he's playing hurt right now too. That's right. He's playing. And and by the way, I mean, while he's hurt, he has two and a half sacks in the playoffs and another forced
0: fumble in those three games that he's been playing hurt. So that guy has been, you know, there are questions about whether or not he was just turning it up for one year on a contract year and what the lack of production in the few seasons leading up to that meant.
1: What about Here's the Carl real Lawson's deal, pressures? What about all the pressures Carl Lawson got
0: five and a half sacks last year? That was the lead guy on this defense, five and a half sacks.
1: The, but what about all the pressures?
0: Isn't that crazy to think back about that storyline now that yeah. people were hand-wringing about that. And I mean, you know, it's, He was credited with seven pressures against the Chiefs on Sunday. He made Pat Mahomes, while the Bengals were only rushing three guys, he still made Pat Mahomes have to think and worry a little bit about, yeah. hey, where's this guy at? Where's he coming from? Is is someone on me yet? Or do I need to try to make a play here? So uh, you you can't talk enough about the difference that he's made on this defense. He's been an absolute stud. That was an incredible free agent acquisition. The other guy, though, Logan Wilson. Your boy that we've been talking about since last year, Skinny. I, I did not know he would be this good in pass coverage. But he is more versatile and more athletic than I
1: realized. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a receiver at one point. He was a receiver coming out of high school. Um, was a safety at one point in college. Has evolved into a linebacker. And, and you know, the thing is, he he has made five interceptions. And I feel like there's still more there because he doesn't feel like he's a he's a complete playmaker. But I also go. Th- I also don't do this. I also don't don't say a lot of times. Yeah, there's Logan Wilson making another tackle six yards down the field. Yeah, there's Logan Wilson making another tackle seven yards down the field. No, I mean, he's effective in both the run. He's a he's a complete three down linebacker, and and, and in today's NFL, boy, the versatility that that guy can give you to where, um, you know, you can go to to a six defensive back set and leave him on the field, and you know he's going to be good in run coverage or in run in in run stops. You know he's going to be in the right place at the right time. He's wearing the 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 headset and having to get guys in in right looks, and that can't be understated either. So. Yeah. I, you know, he's been, he's been everything you could have hoped for. And they kind of rolled the dice there, right. Of after last year, they didn't make any moves at linebacker and decided Logan's our guy, Jermaine's our guy. And it's worked out well.
0: That's just the thing you heard Zach Taylor talk about his versatility too, like you were, but in addition to running the defense and being a captain and having the headset on and getting them into all their stuff and all that, it's amazing what he can do both against the run and against the pass, And he's great in the red zone. And The one thing you pointed to, which is it's not seven or eight yards down the field. He seems to really process things fast and get to the point of attack. And to me, I mean, really that and being good in coverage at this point are two of the most important things you can get out of a linebacker. If you're going to try to play them three downs like you're talking about, those are the keys. Those are the guys that are able to do that. And he appears to be one of them. I mean, he is. He is legit special, I think, at this point. I mean, he's not the best of the best in the NFL, like you said. He's not up for the Pro Bowl this year, and he's probably not quite in that breath, but he's right in that next tier, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I certainly don't notice him in a bad way very often.
0: And there's a there's a lot to be said for that at that position. No doubt. No doubt. Going back to the original question, is there is there more to this defense, in your opinion, or is it mostly that? Lou Anarumo has been really good, and a couple of these stars have really stepped up in the biggest moments.
1: Yeah. Again, I I think some of it was, he was able to, and he, he mentioned it was within concert with the personnel department, but, but this is his stamp too on it of, they wanted guys with position versatility. They wanted guys to be, I mean, I've talked about this before. They wanted to have a guy like Trey Henderson who, believe it or not, can occasionally drop. A guy like Sam Hubbard who he can play around with and put it middle linebacker as a spy on certain circumstances. Um, a guy like Mike Hilton who can blitz off the slot but is also good against the run and a solid slot corner. Um, you know, I, I, yep. I think all the position versatility is what they wanted to get out of all these signings because that's what he's been wanting to do with the defense all along. He couldn't do that with Carl Lawson and Carlos Dunlap. And I go back. I, I don't want to. Piss on either one of those guys. I don't. Um, they were both at times really good players, but they were fairly one-dimensional. Get up the field and try to cause havoc in the well. You can exploit that sometimes. And Carl Gloss didn't like to drop, and they never did drop Carl. And I'm not telling you, you always have to do, it, but if you're gonna gonna run some different blitz packages, you know everybody always talks about you oh, got to blitz more. Well, you got to blitz more in the right way and have the have have the confusion, not just rushing eight guys for the sake of rushing eight guys. Sometimes it's showing eight guys. Dropping two guys they don't expect to drop into zones where the guy wants to throw the football. And if you don't have guys that can do that, then then that stuff doesn't work either. So I think a lot of it is is, is the versatility that they've been able to get either through the draft with Jermaine Pratt and, and Logan Wilson um, uh, and, and then through, obviously, uh, through free agency. And, and I, I think it's been important that he's gotten guys that, that do the things he wants to do.
0: Uh, it's probably something that's not talked about enough in football is finding personnel that fits your system. Like, that's more of a basketball thing, I think, that we talk about a lot, right? When you're recruiting in college basketball or in the NBA and you're, you're trying to play to a certain system, there's a lot of coaches that, you know, well, he may get talent, but he doesn't get guys that play the way he wants to play as well. And then other coaches are really good at that. You know, they don't get the best of the talent, but they get guys that fit their system perfectly. I think this is a good example of that. The Bengals had some talented guys and some talented guys that they had to move on from because... One, they didn't fit the, the system, and two, they didn't seem overly bought in on right. the new system and the new That's way of doing part. things. Yep. And once they made those changes and they got the right guys in there, this defense has really taken off. And I, I, you know, I was never too impressed with them when they brought him in. I didn't really get it to begin with, and I, I he's a little more conservative for my liking, especially early on when he first got here. But you can't say enough about what Lou Lew- Anarumo has done this year. He's been really impressive.
1: I've been a big fan of his from, from, from day one. I just enjoyed the, and maybe it's just because I've enjoyed the exchanges with him, the way he tries to lay things out and and help you understand what they're trying to do. And when you do hear that and you see that some guys can't execute that, you go, that ain't on him. When he gets his guys in here, let's see what he can do. And and that's what this year was about too. Hey, if this hadn't worked this year, well then, you know what? Then that is on you, Lou, but you got your guys and you did the job.
0: You had mentioned Carl Lawson and Trey Hendrickson and that whole storyline in the off season. And what a big deal that was at one point leading up to the year. I wanted to go back and look at, it doesn't have to be off season or preseason necessarily, although that's where most of them will come from. What are the storylines that have changed the most over the course of the season with the Bengals team, in your opinion?
1: I think it's a Joe Burrow. Number one has gone from guy. You thought was going to be a pretty good quarterback in this league to elite. I mean, I don't think we can discount that, Rick. I mean, and it's almost happened, honestly, to, in my opinion, maybe in the last ooh, 10 games or so that that's kind of taken that step for. He's pretty good to he's really, really good in every way. You need a quarterback to be really, really good. And I Two, I, I think the, I'm kid, not so sure I think,
0: he's not the best quarterback in the NFL right now.
1: Like, yeah, that's where that, we've gone I, Right, I think that gets glossed over because it was almost like for a lot of fans, well, I expected this. Well you can say you expected it and that's fine and I'll you know that, I'll take it your word guy or, or, or ma'am, whoever you are. <laughs> but to expect it, I'm sorry, I don't with quarterbacks in the league. I, I hope for it, I can think it, I can think that it's going to happen because but I don't expect it because it's just it's happened to too many guys in this league that they come in and the league just overwhelms them. Nothing has overwhelmed this guy. But even we go back, we've talked about this a little bit. Even going back to last year, I didn't think he was great. I thought he was, okay, he's a capable NFL quarterback. There, there's a lot of good things there that he's moving forward. Yeah, I can see him being being pretty good. To now it's holy cow, this guy in big moments just keeps rising to the occasion um and making big play after big play. And he's he it is it is his leadership and his talent and all the things that you need out of a quarterback that's gotten them in year two of him to the Super Bowl. And that's the fun part about this. If you're a fan is this isn't like, wow, what a great job, Andy Dalton, after seven years and you finally had your offense then or whatever. That was actually five years in 2015 of got the great pieces around you, but it felt like better get it done soon, better get it done soon. With this group, it feels like this is just the start. And, you know, as long as this guy stays upright and stays around, there's going to be a lot of playoff runs to come. I mean, there's going to be a ton of playoff runs to come, in my opinion.
0: I've seen multiple national sports TV shows with the talking heads this week have an argument over whether Tom Brady was passing the crown to Pat Mahomes or Joe Burrow. That's where we've gotten to, not, not just in Cincinnati, not the homers talking like that. The national discourse right now is who's the best quarterback in the league, Pat Mahomes or Joe Burrow. Not like a group of three or four or a tier. We're talking about those two guys being the best quarterbacks in the NFL right now. And I think one thing that's been overlooked is the progress of Joe Burrow over the course of the season, how he has evolved. It has been a real process. It wasn't just like you said, oh, yeah, this guy is clearly great right away. I mean, at one point, and this was close to middle way of the year, we're talking about he's leading the NFL interceptions, right? Is that a problem? Why does that keep happening? Where does he need to get better in those situations? Then we also had the, the conversations about, man, doesn't seem like he moves very well in the pocket. Man, it seems like he's moving a lot better in the pocket. Now he's running and making plays on key third downs and looking for those opportunities to run. Skinny, I'm to the point where physically, I don't think we've gotten everything out of this guy yet. I think his knee is is getting to the point where he's not thinking about it anymore, finally. He's, he's about back to 100% physically, but I think, we could still see more of his playmaking ability and getting out of the pocket and running as a, a designed option, or even just something he sees from the defense when they go into man and they're not spying him or whatever. I think there's more to be tapped there in terms of his overall athleticism and full potential physically. It, it like w- people are just kind of glossing over some of that progress that he's made this year. And, and the fact that there might still be, progress to be made because he hasn't had a real off season yet. He went from a rookie season where COVID was going on and everything was goofy to an off season where he did nothing but rehabilitate a shredded ACL.
1: I mean, the other thing for him too is the more he plays and sees something for a second, third time, yes, the, the better he is. And I think you can go back to even at LSU, right? His first year at LSU, he wasn't all that great. He was okay. He was pretty good. Um, you know, nothing portended what was going to take place his senior season where he just had all those gaudy numbers. But I think, and he's talked about this, the more reps I get, the more comfortable and better I feel. And I I think that's what you saw at LSU was he kind of got his feet wet in year one. And then in year two, had an off season and then hit the ground running. And the more reps he got, the better he got. And the more reps he got, the better he got. And and so last year, kind of got his feet wet, had his ups and downs, did certainly more good than bad. And even as this year went along. The more reps he's gotten, we've talked about this a, a lot, the second time around against teams, he's been really good. Now, for some of these, it's the third and fourth time around against teams. Um, I think that, that to me, is where you're talking about just scratching the surface. You know, he's now going to start to look back at, at all this NFL tape he's got on all these NFL reps now of knowing, what throws can I make, what throws can I not make? And, you know, I, I asked Brian Callahan this on Tuesday about, his ball placement and his accuracy and i said you know you can see it with the completion percentage i said but how more important is it uh, how much more important is ball placement and and that kind of accuracy than having the big cannon for an arm. And he said, I think it's the big differentiator. Um, it is making those those throws in the right place or leading a receiver um, more so than just having physical arm strength. And it's not that he doesn't have arm strength. I think he's got a really good arm. It's not Josh Allen, Matthew Stafford, Pat Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Justin Hoses. Herbert, yeah. yeah, Justin Herbert. But and he's, Brian even said he said I think I think being more accurate is more important than than, than having that. And I Try think to... I agree with that. I mean. I I still go back to the seminal throw for me was that route to Jamar chase in the Tennessee game. I wish I could explain why that was a harder throw than it looked. And yet it was an easy throw because he knew exactly where to put it and chase knew exactly where to run the route. And that, that, you know, I I don't think a lot of quarterbacks make that throw. I really don't. I think they, they throw it flat or they sail it over the guy's head because they can't put it in there with the right touch at the right time. I I, I think that's what makes the guy special.
0: Yeah. Touch and accuracy. It's like having a change of pace and body control and, basketball you know like there there's more to it than just straight speed and with a pitcher it's but it's more than just having a dominant fastball it's having movement on that fastball you know like that's kind of the same thing here in terms of being able to throw as a quarterback all of these guys have pretty damn strong arms so the the fractions of of a percentage that we're talking about an arm strength differential you can more than make those things up with excellent accuracy and excellent touch and your ability to process things. And that's, that's-, that's
1: and that's just it. There, there are, there are some main elements to this. It is a, his preparation. He's talked about that a lot, his ability to process pre-snap post-snap, and then his ability to, to be so uncannily accurate, you know, even the throw to Trent Taylor down on the goal line for the two point conversion, Um, go back and look at that throw. I mean, it looked easy, right? A little easy pitch and catch, mm-hmm. but if there had been a defender, even close to the vicinity, he threw that, Away from wherever the defense was going to be, but perfectly thrown where Trent Taylor didn't have anything to do other than reach his arms out and catch the ball. I mean, that, that to me just it, it, it's a big differentiator.
0: OK, the, the most obvious storyline from this season that has been going on the entire year. I saw people tweeting about it even during the Chiefs game. It was the Jamar Chase and Panay Sewell debate. I mean, obviously, we know where this stands. I don't think there's any chance in hell that they're where they're at if they don't have Jamar Chase on this team, Skinny. But where is this whole storyline at at this point, in your opinion? Is there anything to – is there a final verdict or anything that needs to be added to it?
1: No, um, I I thought it was the right pick all along because that's the guy that changes your offense more than anything else. It wasn't, and that was the other part. It's not like they didn't address the offensive line, right? They went and they got Riley Reef, and that that solved the tackle situation on paper at that point in time um, before the draft even took place. So all Penny Sewell was going to be was an extra piece at that point. Um, You could argue it's maybe a long-term piece ahead of Riley Reef, but they felt like, hey, and and I've told you this, I'm a big believer in this anymore. I'm not telling you you don't draft for depth. I'm not telling you don't draft um you know for for you know hoping a guy pans out but to me anymore go get yourself proven NFL tape get guys who've proven it um at you know, the offensive of,
0: line position
1: yes yes and you're kind of seeing it at right guard right I mean Akeem Denigi sixth round pick great little story happy that he's gonna probably start a Super Bowl but it's not like he set the world on fire. Second round pick, Jackson Carmen in and out of the lineup again could have a long-term great future has not had a great rookie year it's been okay it's had its good moments i mean he threw a great block on the p ryan screen pass and then even hell their best offensive lineman this year is probably the left guard quentin spain who had proven nfl tape was on the street for whatever reason didn't fit somebody's scheme system etc and and you bring him in and he's proven that he can do the job in the nfl and i'm just in that camp anymore of I'm just not wasting high draft collateral on offensive linemen. I'm just not. I'm gonna go get proven NFL tape and 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 I think that's the that's the way to go.
0: Well, and that debate's not coming to an end anytime soon. It's gonna be a constant conversation for this franchise in the offseason because they have to address the offensive sure, line no question. now. And a lot of people I saw. Pro Football Focus today tweeting about a couple of the top offensive linemen available no, in this year's draft. No. Exactly. I mean, to me, that just does not make sense for where the Bengals are at. They don't need more unproven guys to shuffle around the front of that offensive line and try to continue to figure it out years down the road. They need one at least, if not two, plug and play immediately ready, get you to compete at the top of the NFL type offensive linemen.
1: Hello, Ryan Jensen, Tampa Bay Center. Welcome, welcome to the party. Skinny, give me another one. Do you have any other storylines? Well, the, the other have... one, the other one to me is easy. It is, listen, you hoped Evan McPherson would be a capable NFL kicker, right? You hoped it. Yeah. But I mean, you talk about a guy that's made a huge difference on this football team. I mean, a huge difference. Um, and we've talked about this. I mean, I think he scares coordinators on the other side of the ball when the Bengals get to the fifty. And I think Paul Doherty was doing a piece or has written a piece. I've not seen it if he did. And I've I've talked about this. I've written about it before, of of how much he does put the fear, like Justin Tucker does, of defensive coordinators. And Lou was asked about you know when you got a guy like that on the other side. He said. You start to think about not in terms of getting a stop. You're thinking in terms of getting a negative play, and that's a tough place to be as a coordinator. It's hard to dial up negative plays because usually, if you're dialing up negative plays, you can maybe get one, but that also means you're probably exposing yourself to a big play by the offense. So that's yeah, you're taking some risks, right? That's what an Evan McPherson has done, and so not only is he, is he made those long range, but he's made game winning kicks. Um, I thought Darren Simmons made a really good point that he said, I think he learned something from from missing the kicks against Green Bay, that he thought he made the one, he didn't. And, and he learned that that sometimes, you know, this you just got to find a way to bounce back from that because it's going to happen in the league. And boy, is that kid not bounce back in a big way? And it was hard to even blame him for those two, right? He doinks the upright from 57, and he thought he cleared the other one from 49, and, and it looked like it went straight over top of the goalpost. So even even in his failures, you go, Pretty good effort. (laughs) Kind of liked it. I mean, hard to fault the kid for it. Um, And he's been nothing but clutch ever since. And you look at it, the Bengals have the most
0: lethal end-of-game combination in the entire NFL between Joe Burrow and Evan McPherson. Yeah. It is legitimately striking fear in the hearts of opposing coaches and defensive coordinators. And we've seen that. We saw exactly how Andy Reid tried to handle the end-of-game situation last week, and it ended up costing his team as a result. But I mean, multiple times people are worried and a lot of it stems from Joe Burrow, first and foremost, he's the one that has to move them into position. I understand that. But there's also this other part of it where Evan McPherson is not just gives you the opportunity to make 50 plus yarders. You feel like it's a lock. If you get inside 55, this dude's going to ice the game. And that's a big advantage.
1: You know, when they crossed into Kansas City territory in overtime and then you you come to the realization of, oh, my gosh, they're a first down away from at least giving this guy a chance. And that's yeah. all it was at that point. A first down away. And then obviously they rip off the big run by Mixon and, and they're well within the range and that that's that. But when you start thinking those terms, you know, the defense is thinking, oh, my God, we can't give up another first down or they're going to have a legit chance to beat us now. And now you got to start to dial up, as Luana Rumo said, some negative plays. And that's a tough spot to be in.
0: Do you have any other storylines for us to nah, get those to are those, those,
1: those are the main ones. If you've got another one, certainly shoot it at me. But I thought those were the, the, the main three, to be honest with you. Well,
0: we, we talked so much about Zach Taylor and this coaching staff and this organization and everything on the podcast after the Chiefs game that we recorded Sunday night. If you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it because there's a bunch of more stuff that are more game-related and Bengals-specific in that. But I think before the season, we were – how many games does Zach Taylor have before he's fired? Then midway through the season, not, not a little bit before that, but you know, I, we get a handful of games in the season. We're talking about, okay, he's proven enough probably to get him through this year for sure. Now let's see how this thing really plays the rest of the way out too the NFL writers look like absolute idiots for the fact that this guy isn't coach of the year.
1: Yeah. Uh, um, and some of that I think is more regular season related. It's always easy to look at the playoffs, but he certainly needed to be in the conversation for that, even through the regular season. I mean, he led him well, to and be he, able, he, he was in
0: the conversation for sure. Right. He just ended up losing out to right. uh Vrabel, but I mean, it, really, just looking at how that storyline has evolved, and again, I know we talked, we don't have to get into all the backstory of how what a great job they've done, everything because we did that Sunday night, but it really is kind of crazy to think about it was how many games does this guy have left. In his career as a head coach, to now he's the hottest thing going, and everyone's going to try to find the next Zach Taylor.
1: Yeah. And I think he's extremely grateful that they gave him the third year because I think he realizes 625 and one is ugly, no matter what you were trying to do with a roster, no matter what culture you were trying to present and set, and all those things. I think you realize 625 and one usually gets you whacked, and they stayed patient with it. And uh, I'm not sure I would have agreed with it in retrospect. Well, I'm not sure I, I, I would have agreed with it and did agree with it at the time, but. Again, I'll give him all the credit in the world for sticking with him because it's worked out in spades.
0: All right, Skinny, sticking with the NFL, we have a national topic to get to as former Dolphins head coach Brian Flores is suing the NFL, alleging racial discrimination in its hiring practices. Flores also alleges that the Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, offered to pay him $100,000 per loss in 2019 in hopes of securing the number one draft pick in the 2020 NFL draft. Flores claims his refusal to comply was the beginning of the end of his time in Miami. Since then, Hugh Jackson has come forward with claims that Cleveland tried to incentivize him to lose games as well. When he was in the midst of his two year reign of terror with the Browns. Skinny, how big of a problem do you think this is for the NFL?
1: Well, I think the hiring thing is certainly real um, and and it is disappointing to, to, give token interviews just to just to uh, follow the the Rooney rule. I think that's that's ridiculous because I, I think Brian Ford has proved in Miami he's a pretty damn good football coach. Now, the place he lost me a little bit was the whole when he interviewed in Denver and those people had been drinking the night before. I mean, yeah, I drink the night before sometimes too, and I get up and do my job just fine. So I you kind of lose me when you do stuff like that. But, but I think his point about the Rooney rule is real. Um, I, th- I think good for him in that regard. Um, I, I know with, with a couple of these things, from what I've been told, uh, I, the, the Dolphins can keep telling telling people that they didn't and that Steven Ross didn't tell them to tank games, but apparently um, they got receipts, and it's going to get ugly, um, especially when they start to talk to some people who have some knowledge of that kind of stuff. And so uh, and then Hugh Jackson follows up with what you said of, of the same thing happened with him in Cleveland. Um, boy, that's that's an ugly stain for the league, and I don't know how – I don't know what they do about it, Rick. The only thing I could think of is you go to an NBA draft lottery system that, that that suggests yeah you can tank, but it doesn't guarantee you getting that number one overall pick. And um, you know I I, I know we've talked I think we talked about this when the Bengals were were th- that game against Miami a couple of years ago that they almost won that would have screwed them out of Joe Burrow perhaps. Um, and and you know I truly believe that that team never tried to lose. They just weren't good enough to win. Um, but when owners start incentivizing uh, you for that, I don't know. They didn't. They Well, didn't. Skinny,
0: Skinny, hold on. Do you not remember Ryan Finley becoming the starting quarterback for that team at one point?
1: I, I do, and I, I, well, I understand th- that.
0: then what are we saying happened there? If well, you were I, trying I, to lose by doing that, what were you trying to
1: do? Well, I mean, they didn't lose, though. I mean, they, they beat Pittsburgh on the Monday night game.
0: But do you think Andy Dalton was the better quarterback? Do you think Ryan Finley was the better quarterback at that point? Well,
1: they, they were ready to move on from Andy Dalton, Dalton no matter what. And, and I, I, no, I still don't think that was a matter of losing. Maybe it was. And maybe you're right, Rick. Maybe it was. I, I, I think they just wanted to take a look at Ryan Finley in an extended period of time. And you're right. Maybe it was. It, it, it may have been the case. Um, but to me, the whole bottom line to all this is, 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 especially when now you've gotten in bed with gambling, and you've gotten in bed with gambling, it's a bad look. A bad look all the way around. When you start, when the public starts thinking people are fixing games, listen. I'm you and I love to gamble on games. There's times I think games are fixed. There's times I scream it. I don't really believe it when I scream it. But I, I think when you start hearing this kind of stuff and it's real, I'm telling you, I think this is where the blank hits the fan as much as the whole Rooney Rule situation hits the fan. Um, it's a bad, bad look, and the NFL can't hide under a rock on this.
0: Unfortunately, with the racial discrimination going on in terms of hiring head coaches, that is clearly an issue. I think everyone agrees for the most part. I I haven't heard anyone argue otherwise really at this point, just looking at the numbers of it and how the league works and everything. And the fact that so many players are black, so many of them try to become coaches after they're done playing. And so few of them ever reach that point that, pretty obvious something's going on there and that's not an nfl that's not an nfl problem that's a problem across our entire country and i don't know that it's one that can be solved and certainly not easily solved i don't even really know where to go in terms of start talking about answers and solutions to that however this being incentivized to tank thing is a new wrinkle to all of this and i think it plays into the racial discrimination side of things but the side that you brought up uh, the gambling and the lack. I mean, this is the Pete Rose situation, right? It's why right. Pete Rose has been banned for so long and why <laughs> steroid users and everything like that are still allowed to be part of the game. Because the second that you have people thinking that one side's not actually tr- actively trying to win the game, you have major issues, especially when it comes to the gambling and with the way gambling's being legalized in our country and pushed through, that's going to be a big deal.
1: Now, now, I will say maybe, maybe the average fan doesn't care. They just love their football. They're going to watch their football. Maybe they're not going to, you know, they're they're going to go, okay, maybe this team's tanking. I'll bet on the other team and I'm good with that. Go ahead and tank away, guys. Have a good so, time with it. And maybe so, that's the case.
0: So that's kind of where I was going to go with this. Not that I don't think the average fan cares, because I think they do. I think people will be pissed about this. I think it will be a big deal. Uh I think people will want to raise hell about it. But I also look at it from the perspective you brought up is we always talk about games like this. In fact, the reason most bettors bet the way they do in the final few weeks of the season are because, oh, this team has nothing to play for or that team's going to be tanky. We already talk about this stuff openly. We already believe it's going on. So I, I guess finding out that it really is going on and they are intentionally trying to lose the game does change things to a certain extent. But does it really... And and ultimately, if they don't do anything about it, what what is really going to change? Are any of us really going to do anything differently? No, we're going to continue to bet on the games. We're going to continue to watch the games. We're going to continue to go to the games and spend our money. I mean, look at the playoffs that just played out in front of us. That was as good of a show as you can possibly have in sports. The playoff games were fantastic throughout the entire. The first week was bad because you had all the chalk winning, which is what you wanted because it set up all the great games that we had in the, the latter rounds. But. I don't think it really matters all that much when it comes down to it or that it really changes anything. I no, guess
1: I, I I think what it ties into when it ties to the Rooney rule is and, and we don't have any other specific examples at the moment, but it is two blackhead coaches who apparently were asked to tank, right? Yeah. A, and and to get and, other draft picks. And so that 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 is a that's the worst look of all of hey, you tank in order to get us better draft picks, and then I'm gonna fire you and hire the white guy. Exactly. That's what it looks like.
0: And that's where it really looks bad, and that's where it probably is. It's at its worst, and it ties back into the not having enough minority head coaches. The problem with that skinny is, I don't know that that's going to be fixed. I don't know that the people in charge of fixing that are going to care. I don't think we can rid our country of racism very easily. So, I don't know exactly what changes about that. As crass as that is to say, and I do think the lack of integrity and the games potentially being fixed plays to a larger audience. I do think more people will take a stand about that and will care and will try to do something about that. The problem is I don't really know that it matters and I don't really know what can be done to change
1: it. Yeah. The only thing I think of to change it is you go to a lottery system instead of a slotted system.
0: Yeah. And I mean, do you really think that's better?
1: I I think it would be. I mean, look at the NBA, right. But the NBA very rarely do you get an impact draft pick. You occasionally do, but, but I mean, for the most part, it's, again, it's guys who've done it in the league, you know, changing teams on, on, you know, max and, contracts that and, that are the difference makers.
0: And yet you have all these
1: teams tanking all I know, the time. Is, it seems like which half, is silly. half the teams in the league are tanking. Right. Which is, a, which is silly. Right, I mean, most so of the I, teams anymore are built on veterans, not on rookies. The the issue I'm,
0: I worry about with the lottery is, it gives almost everyone hope that they can be the first pick. If you're in the bottom half, yeah, you've but, got yeah, a but, chance.
1: Right. But, the, but, but a big part of this is though, and I think you saw it this year is you would do it only for non-playoff teams. Right. But there were so many teams this year, Rick, towards the end that were in the playoff hunt. It, it, it you know, and then, then there's the, you know, eight to 10 that aren't.
0: You're talking about for the NFL. Yes, yes,
1: yes. yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if you do it for the non, that, that's who would make the lottery it would be the non-playoff teams or the, or the lottery teams. Um, I just don't see there being widespread tanking in the NFL if that's the case because so many teams were in the playoff hunt this year.
0: Yeah. I I mean it's it's interesting to see what can actually be done about it, what will actually be done about it, because I, I don't doubt at all that this is happening. It makes total sense. I mean, we've we pretty much have already acknowledged that we think teams are tanking and we know teams are tanking, but it wouldn't be surprised that these offers have been out there. The thing that will change is in theory, these owners or GMs, whoever are making these offers will not be so stupid as to actually uh,
1: offer acknowledge money to do it. there's an offer. <laughs> yeah. 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 I
0: mean, like they'll just, you know, say it without saying it essentially, but they won't ever actually like make this offer or insinuate it in words or in text or anything like that. So
1: that's where, I mean, I go back to, and we joked about this at the time. I think Urban Meyer tanked. I think he decided just get me fired so I can make my money. I'm done.
0: I don't disagree. I'm not so sure that didn't happen with a local regional basketball program recently. Maybe. You got anything else on the uh, NFL and Brian Flores situation, Any? That's all I got for now. Skinny, we do have some college basketball to talk about though, and I've got a little buy or sell segment here for each of the local teams. And so we'll start with Kentucky. Buy or sell Kentucky as a Final Four team?
1: I'll buy it. Um, I do it a little reluctantly cause I still, I still am not quite sure, but I also look around the rest of college basketball and I haven't seen enough Gonzaga. I know enough of them to know the, how dominant they can be. But if right now you're going to try to sell me that Purdue is a one seed, which they are, I think. Um, and so that would be technically, you know, if you want to just go by the seeds, that's a final four. T- if you want to tell me Purdue's a final four team, I can tell you, I think Kentucky's a final four team. You know, Kansas, I think, with bracket matrix I looked at yesterday morning, is still a two-seed. Kentucky snuck up to the two-seed line. Yep. If you're going to tell me you think Kansas is a Final Four team, I can tell you Kentucky's a Final Four team. So, I, I just don't see that. And and while Auburn's really, really good, I'm just telling you, Rick, they got an easy SEC schedule. And they've parlayed a little bit of that. I mean, most of their hard games have been at home. They're not playing Kentucky twice. They don't return to Rupp Arena. They got Kentucky at home. So... Um, I think Auburn's really good. I think Baylor's really good. I think Gonzaga's probably the best team, but they've been beaten along the way. I just don't think there's a bunch of teams out there where you go, oh, there's a huge tier here and a big drop there. So yeah, if you're going to sell me on Kansas and, and, and Illinois maybe and, and, and Purdue and even Baylor as a Final Four team, I, I'll buy Kentucky as a Final Four team.
0: Right. I mean, Baylor's lost three of their last seven. We've seen they can be beatable. Uh, the Kentucky-Auburn game, I think if you go back to that, before the injuries happened, Ty Ty Washington right. goes down. Um, severe Wheeler got
1: hurt in that game, too? Yeah, someone he did for, for a, for a yeah. brief period of time, yes. Yeah, I knew
0: someone else went down, too. Kentucky was in control of that game early on. and When the injuries happened, it changed the game a little bit, but I don't think there's anyone who watched that game and thinks Kentucky versus Auburn on a neutral court is heavily favored towards Auburn in any stretch oh, of the right. imagination of Kentucky's healthy. Um, Purdue, you already mentioned, and I agree with you there. I think Kentucky's better. I mean, Gonzaga, we don't really have a good measuring stick of where the teams are at right now to compare those two teams, but any of the other teams you want to throw out there as current one seeds, which by bracket matrix is Auburn, Gonzaga, Baylor, and Purdue. Right, and there you go. Kentucky is right there with them, and there is no more impressive win this entire season in all of college basketball than what Kentucky did last Saturday at
1: Kansas. And that was with Ty Ty Washington back in the lineup, not scoring, but playing great. But he was one of nine from the field and they still beat him by 18. That was an ass. And, and it was worse than that, to be honest with Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it felt like it was 35 or 40 to be quite honest. That game was not close at all. Kansas was completely dead. The thing about Kentucky is they have an elite offense, top five in the country in offensive efficiency to Ken Palm. And we always talk about skinny, what do you got to be? You got to be good on both sides of the ball. You got to be top twenty-five, yeah, by Ken Palm rankings on both sides of the ball. Typically, to be a national title contender, to be a Final Four type team, and Kentucky, the numbers have
1: numbers have proven that out over decades.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that's there's, a pretty there's, like, there's like,
1: I think, I think the one outlier. I've done this before, Rick. I think the one outlier was the year UConn won the championship. That kind of magical run they were, which like makes out, sense. Right, correct. There was one outlier, and okay, I'll give you an outlier.
0: Yeah. But Kentucky is a great defensive team, too. They're top 20 in that. They are dominant on the glass on both ends of the court. They don't really turn the ball over. They've got, for my money, the National Player of the Year in Oscar Shibway. And then you've got your one and done NBA star top 10 pick in Ty Ty Washington. I, this Kentucky team has all of the makings for a final four team. The one well, concern is that they don't shoot it all that well from three point range, but I'd also argue they're a lot more consistent and a lot harder to beat with a flute game just because they can't shoot because they always win without making threes. That's how they play.
1: Yeah. You know, and we saw earlier in the year, you couldn't tell what everybody's role was severe. willer dribbled too much. And where did Ty Ty fit in the mix? Now you're starting to figure it all out and they're starting to mesh pretty well together. And you still got another month of regular season to keep meshing those parts.
0: All right, Xavier, as a Sweet Sixteen team, buying or selling that second weekend?
1: Yeah, I'll buy it uh, yeah, because I think they can get hot enough to do that. They can also get knocked out as a six seed or a five seed by the eleven or twelve. I mean, it really could happen. Um, but yeah, I could see them as a Sweet Sixteen team. I mean, if they get it as a as a six, I mean, I don't even I, I don't have it up in front of me, but I can't imagine the threes are gonna gonna wow me. Um, so yeah, if 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 they can make shots. And that sounds so simplistic, but when they do, like they did at Creighton, it's ridiculous how, how, how much they can score. Um, I think they can, I, like I said, they could also get knocked off as a five seed by a 12 or a, get knocked off as a six seed by an 11.
0: I'm not saying this to argue with you or shoot down your point, but it's just random because you said that. And I was looking at bracket matrix. The three seed line is weirdly very strong right now. Is it? Okay. Yeah, okay. Villanova, it? Duke. Wisconsin, and Houston. That is a pretty good three-seed All four of those teams are pretty damn good teams. Are final four contenders, in my opinion, and Wisconsin Wisconsin even has a national player of the year contender too. So uh, that's a tough three-seed line to be looking at, but your point still stands, and I totally agree with it. The thing about Xavier is they have experience. They are a bit of a buzzsaw when they're at their best. I mean, they look like a top-ten team in the country at times. I mean, that second half that they put together against Creighton this weekend – was ridiculous. Well, I said this on show the other day. If it wasn't for Kentucky playing the game of the year, the best performance we've seen all season on Saturday night at Kansas, that stretch by Xavier might have been the best performance I've seen in all of college basketball. And certainly this week, I mean, they they were unbelievable. When they play like that, they can beat anybody. The problem with Xavier is you just have these stretches where they are so inept on offense and it makes no sense. And I don't understand how to rectify that with what we see regularly from this team, but it's not just a, a thing that's happened once or twice. It's like they do this a fair amount where they go through these really bad offensive droughts and they just can't seem to get themselves right. So th- this to me was the toughest of the questions we're asking in terms of the fire. sell. Xavier, as a second weekend team, I could see that being an easy yes for some people. I could see it being a hard no for others. And I don't know that I have a great argument against either one. of
1: them. Yeah, I have a hard time believing it's a hard no, though. Um, I don't know if it's an easy yes either, but I yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's a hard no.
0: Fair enough. I think the, the, the arguments against Xavier are, like we said, just way too inconsistent. Too many droughts where they just can't score at all. And then I would also throw in there that too often looking at the matchups for them against, I don't feel like they have the best talent on the floor. I feel like most games the other team has the best player and maybe the best one or two players. All right. Uh, Cincinnati skinny. Are you spying or selling Cincinnati as an AAC tournament contender?
1: Uh, tournament contender. Yeah. I thought you were going to give me that they were going to earn the automatic burden. Nah, yeah. Tournament contender. I, yes,
0: I, I am. I am. I'm, I'm saying, do you think they have a chance to win the AAC tournament and get that automatic berth? That's basically their only chance at this point. Yes. They're not no going to be in yes, that large no,
1: bid. No, that's correct. Um, Yes, because there's only other one other team in the league that's that's dominant. There's only one team in the league that's dominant, rather, and that that's that's Houston. And so um depending on your seed, if you could avoid Houston to the title game and Houston doesn't have much to play for and they go well, hell, they could get beat maybe earlier in the tournament and get them knocked out and then it opens up wide open. Yes, UC's as good as anybody in that league, not named Houston.
0: Uh I I would agree with you on that fact. That's definitely the case. They can be as good as anyone or they can beat anyone in the conference on any given night, not named Houston. The problem here is Houston is still in the conference and there are no one in the league has shown any signs of being able to beat Houston this year. I'm not sure that anyone can even give them much of a close game. I think at Tulsa was one of those games where they kind of slept, walked through it and only won by a couple of possessions. But aside from that, That that's the whole issue. I mean, UC will get their chance this Sunday. They'll get their opportunity to play Houston. Maybe we'll see something that'll change our minds there in terms of if UC could pull that upset. But right now, I just don't think there's anyone that's even close in the AAC to being able to beat Houston. Yeah, yeah,
1: everything's been a double-digit win in the league, except for at Temple, they won by five. And as you mentioned, that Tulsa game, which was at Tulsa that they won by two. I mean, everything else has been, and some of it's been ass kickings. And when you look at their two losses, they lost by two to Wisconsin, and by one to Alabama. Now, Alabama's squirrely, obviously, right? Because they they figure out a way to lose to awful Georgia, but they also have some of the biggest wins of anybody in the country. So um, that's a pretty good team in Houston. No question. That's a yeah. Final Four caliber team.
0: And, and when you talk about the, the at Tulsa and at Temple game, that feels so much to me like when Xavier was in the Atlantic 10. Yeah, you and they have, would be the, the right, best team. It's just hard to stay up right. every game, especially no when question. you're on the road and there's 1000 people there you are used to playing in front of a sold out crowd like that can be tough so i'm not that doesn't bother me much right. I look no, at I'm, with I'm with you i'm with you uh, they they're dominant in that conference so i think you see is you know i'm not saying they're as good as anybody else in the conference but they can definitely beat anyone else in the conference so they could get to the finals if they avoid Houston i just don't really think they have much of a chance of beating Houston
1: no but but then you go back to you know does Houston have some maybe depending on where things sit do they have that, that real incentive to win the damn thing? Maybe yeah. they don't. Well, and they, well, they, they send the someone tournament.
0: out or something if they right, have right. guys nicked up. So, I mean, I guess it's possible. And then finally, we've got NKU as a Horizon League tournament contender.
1: I'm buying. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip this on you here, though. Do you worry that they, and I hate to ask this this way, that they're peaking too soon or that they're still – on the upswing to continue to peak because now we're now down to, to another three weeks and they're playing really good basketball. I mean, there were stretches. I had a buddy of mine that texted me just crapping all over him for the, for the performance for a chunk of the Cleveland State game. And yet NKU turns around and ends up winning that game um, handily in the end. So, uh, you know, they're getting some really good wins. You can tell me it's at home. That's fine. It doesn't matter. They were the top dog in the league. You know, I, I do want to see what happens with Oakland because now they're, they've ascended to number one in the league. But yeah, absolutely a contender because they're starting to prove it.
0: Yeah, to me, Oakland is heads and shoulders above everybody else in the conference in terms of talent. Cleveland State might be right there with them in, in terms of consistency and winning and all that. But Oakland is by far the team that I don't think NKU matches up well with. We'll see that that game's supposed to be played tonight. We'll see if it happens, given
1: the uh, weather situation. But um and they still have not banged it yet, which surprises me because right you see obviously you see obviously got banged the night early oh. yesterday against Memphis. So well, northern Kentucky
0: t- toughness is just different, skinny. We're built <laughs> well, different in the eight five nine, as you you're,
1: know. You are talking that right now, Chief. We'll see where it goes. Yeah, yeah the by the time progresses. this podcast is out, right. it's probably gonna be right. whacked.
0: But <laughs> I will tell you. They took us kicking and screaming because we wanted to play the game. That's doubles. exactly right.
1: There's no doubt. I mean, yeah, I will say it was cancel
0: culture that got us.
1: I don't know. where opposing teams stay. I know there's that ham. Is it a Hampton Inn right below the campus? I 275?
0: thought it was usually the uh, river center Marriott down in Covington. But oh, that's
1: a little bit more of a trek. I was gonna say, if the trek is short and the team's already here, you may not get fans there, but you may go ahead and say, Hey, you're already here. Let's go ahead and play.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens, but getting back to the original point of this question, Oakland, has never won a Horizon League tournament. They It's
1: crazy, because they've had some real talent, and I like him as a coach. They've crazy had two NBA went,
0: guys Greg, since they has been in the conference. They had Kay Felder, and they had Kendrick Nunn.
1: Yeah, crazy here Greg Campy. I, I, think, and I think he's a really good coach. He's been Everyone doing for a does. Long time. I know, and but yet he you're is, right. It's weird. He has
0: not won a Horizon League tournament. Uh, they've won the regular season title once since they've been in the Horizon League. But even this year already, they lost to Milwaukee by 10. And Milwaukee's not very good. Milwaukee's ranked 313th in Ken Palm. So, and then the Horizon League, since NKU has been in the Horizon League out of, I guess that's six or seven years now, there's only been one time that the top seed has won the Horizon League championship, and that was Cleveland State last year. So most years, it's not the top seed. And if you take, you know, Oakland out of this, NKU's already proven by beating Cleveland State and Wright State last week, that they can play with anyone in this conference.
1: And they're going to get two swings at Oakland, depending on if this game's played tonight or when it's rescheduled, and they play Oakland, what, later in February towards yeah, the end? So
0: the 20th at Oakland. Okay, yeah, yep. yeah. But you've got great card play. You've got three guys that can take over a game late, and Sam Vincent, Marquez Warwick, and Trayvon Faulkner. Uh, to answer your question that it, are they peaking too soon, I would say no. I think they're just starting to actually scratch the surface. Yeah, and and
1: that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, that's a good. uh, uh, uh,
0: I think Sam Vincent kind of changed the dynamic of everything this year a little bit. You know, last year it was more Trayvon Faulkner, Mark West Warwick. I don't think it's ideal for Trayvon Faulkner to be one of your go-to scorers. And they've kind of seen that take place naturally over the course of the year. Early on, he was. More recently, it's been mostly Sam and Marquez leading the way. And Trayvon's able to be a little bit more selfless, a little bit more of a role-player hustle guy, do all the small things for him. And I think everything's starting to click into place as guys are understanding their roles. And Bryson and Langdon has been really good down the stretch, giving them another ball handler who's, who's playing well. So, yeah, I th- I'm, I'm buying NKU as a Horizon League contender as well. All right, Skinny, let's get into some Ask Skinny Anything. Most of it is Bengals related questions. There's some food questions in here as well. We'll start with Zach Taylor. He has an overall record of 19,32 and 1, but he's now three and0 in the playoffs and leading the Bengals to their third Super Bowl in franchise history. After just three years of being the head coach, where does Taylor rank in the best head coaches in Bengal's history? I'll
1: go fourth. Do you want the top three? Yeah, yeah. I
0: would, we would like you have in front of them. Yes. I'm assuming <laughs> uh, three, it's not I, Bruce Coslett.
1: No, that's correct. Three would be Sam Weish. Um, just because of, of they were always in the hunt for the most part, even in years they didn't make the playoffs. And um I, I'm just gonna go with the Sam Weish. Two Forrest Gregg. The the 82 season was really disappointing after the 81 season because they 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 went seven and two. And unfortunately, as that year went on, that defense got worse and worse and worse. It was a strike year that led them to only playing nine games. But they that offense that year was just dominant, and they took an early lead against the Jets in the playoff game. Then Ken Anderson threw a pick six at the goal line, and that was a game. Freeman McNeil ran for two hundred plus yards. And honestly, I thought that was the best team in the AFC that year. Got knocked out in the first round. But Forrest Gregg it was a short period of time. It was a very short window, nineteen eighty to eighty three. But he's number two, and number one's Paul Brown. I mean. Um, not just because he was the founder of the franchise, but uh, Paul Brown in in a short period of time in 1970, third year of the the franchise took them to the playoffs 73. They had a really good team, took them to the playoffs, lost to the, to the dolphins. And that was the dolphins dynasty um, where they had the undefeated year, the year before. And then the the 75 team was outstanding. His last year as a coach, they went uh, 11 and three. Unfortunately, got the wild card had to go out and play a great Oakland Raiders franchise had a chance late to win that game. He did go zero and three in the playoffs, but uh, for Paul Brown from nineteen sixty eight to seventy five with an expansion franchise, taking him to three straight play- or three playoffs. In- yeah, I mean that's a pretty good run for um, early in 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 the franchise's history. And it wasn't like he was some unknown coach. He had done a lot of things before that. So Paul Brown to me is number one, and it's not even close.
0: All right, uh, is it more embarrassing for guys to be posting their Wordle scores? or their reaction
1: videos to the Bengals winning. Skinny, are you, have you got caught up in the Wordle craze? Do you know what that is? I I, I, you know, I I, do know what Wordle is, and I have not gotten caught up in that craze. I, I probably could. I got caught up in the Sporkle craze at one point, and thank goodness I got out of that wormhole because I could get in that wormhole for days on end. <laughs> um, I've not gotten in the Wordle one yet, but yeah, I, yeah posting any of that stuff to me, no offense. I don't care your reaction. I don't care your score. I'm sorry. I don't. It's, it's, it's like, as much as I like fantasy football, you don't need to hear about my fantasy football team. You oh, don't. I'm sorry. That, you don't.
0: That's the absolute worst. Don't even get me started on fantasy. I don't play fantasy football as you know, mainly the reason yep. for it is because I don't want to be in conversations with people who do play fantasy football. So I love to just be like, Oh, I don't even play as soon as they start bringing it up. So I they'll just move on to the next guy who they can talk about their team with. But Okay, the Wordle scores thing, I think it's biz- I mean it's the best example of any product you make that people have to post online to show like their result or a picture of them doing something or whatever. Anything that involves people sharing online is the best business model possible because people have to copy whatever they see their friends doing online. They they cannot re- it's like why would you ever post your score of like a goofy little word game on your phone? And there, there are some of the smartest people in the world that I follow right now. Some of the best journalists, Pulitzer Prize winners, all that type of stuff. And they just cannot refrain from posting their Wordle scores on Twitter. And, and, and it's uh, the uh, damnedest unless, thing to me. Uh,
1: unless they're in some kind of a league where you got to post the score and the best one wins money. Uh, no, it's what's totally complete?
0: optional. It's totally optional. You don't even know have to that. do I, it. I, I, I realize that. Yeah, it's um, I, I, I just cannot believe. I mean, these are people that are hugely accomplished people that have done really big things and and you look at them and you you think of them of like kind of cool put together people that you know know how to not embarrass themselves and look I'm not I'm caught up in the the content wheel right I mean I'm just constantly running on that little treadmill putting out content I don't I'm not embarrassed usually by much that goes out there and it doesn't really bother me I'm I'm all for anybody posting whatever they want to post for the most part I'm just shocked at how many people are not embarrassed by posting their scores from Wordle and on the same token, I'm surprised there are so many grown men that like to set up a camera in front of themselves, like right before the end of the Bengals game. Act like they, they say it's a reaction, but in reality, when you set up a camera intentionally on yourself and you know, it's there, you're acting for the camera. Like, you know, you're, you're setting it up. It's not someone filming you. Those videos I understand a little bit more. You catch your your buddy or your friend just losing their mind. They're maybe they're funny. They someone who's a little bit of a character that I can understand. But these guys who set up their cameras beforehand and then like act into the camera, you gotta admit that's a little weird. That's a lot weird. <laughs> it's a lot. Who's more embarrassing to you, the Wordle score guy or the reaction video guy?
1: I'll, I'll go Wordle score guy for sure. We're yeah, Wordle score guy in my opinion, no question.
0: Okay, I think that's more embarrassing too, but I also think the reaction videos are a little bit weird. And I'm, I'm surprised at some of the people that I've seen post their reaction videos. I'm all for the Bengals and the fandom stuff. It's fun, but it's just surprising to me some of the ones I've seen. Uh, then there was also a story on Local 12 Skinny about two Bengals fans who were scheduled to get married next fall. They've now changed their wedding date to the Super Bowl, and they're going to have a Super Bowl Bengals watch party. They're huge Bengals fans. What do you make of the Super Bowl watch party as your wedding? Are you okay with that, or do you think that's a party foul altogether yeah, to make people attend your wedding yeah, on the Super Bowl? That's
1: a party. Yeah, no, no. And honestly, I, I, I'm not coming to your wedding to watch the Super Bowl. I'll, I'll come to your wedding, but I'm not going to do it to watch the Super Bowl. I want to watch it from my house. I'm sorry, right. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. Yeah, I. No offense. I know people love, and I guess it's her mentality. I know people got butt hurt that we weren't going to have the big watch party at Paul Brown stadium. I thought, <laughs> what the hell are you going to go watch the game? What, what are you doing? It's it's weird.
0: Who wants to go do that? Watch it with a bunch of strangers where you're uncomfortable and potentially dealing with the elements like cold and who knows what other weather, like who doesn't enjoy watching the game, either in the comfort of their own home or, with who they typically watch the game with. If you've you got like, you know, a lot of people have their watch party, they do it with their family on a regular basis. That makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, and Why a, a would handful, you want to be in a handful a Yeah,
1: right. A handful of people. Because here's the thing at the wedding. You know what's going to happen at the wedding, right? And this is the guy that, you're going to get casual fan who's there because of the wedding, doesn't know much football, and is going to just say something stupid a couple of times. It's almost like, just sh- shut up. Just shut up. Please oh, shut up.
0: The amount of stup- stupid comments that are coming out during that wedding watch party that doesn't even oh. make the list of why I think it's a bad idea. And yet that would be more than enough to keep me from ever going to this.
1: Yeah, no question. I, I
0: just no can't question. imagine asking other people to come to my wedding on Super Bowl Sunday. Like they didn't have plans that they might, you know, th- like they might have family or friends that they want to watch the game with. Right. Why would That's you right. ask them to come to this?
1: Yeah, it's a little presumptuous. So I'm not going to lie.
0: Yeah, I I think that's and I haven't a,
1: ordered your i i, I and, and at that point you go you know what I haven't ordered your play setting yet and I'm not gonna have a good day.
0: It's like I'll send you a gift in the mail. You'll get it through Amazon here in a couple of days. But other than that, that's really going to exactly. be my the extent of my involvement in these proceedings. Um. All right, chicken wings on game day. Are you a flats or a drumstick, Sky Skinny?
1: I'm both. I, I don't mind either one. that obviously, the flats there's a little bit more work, but I, I kind of like that ripping of the of the tendon there and kind of like cleaning down the one side of it. Uh, I, i'm I'm good either way. The, the 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 drumsticks are usually meatier in theory, but you can get some some flats that are pretty meaty sometimes too. So yeah, I, I don't really have a preference. i'm I, I can do either or. I'm
0: with you on that. I don't discriminate, but I think I've become a flats guy. I think I prefer the flats for whatever reason. they just seem to taste better.
1: They're they're they, 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 like I said they can be meat. I just I, I like that feel of just kind of ripping and, and taking I, one side. You clean that off. You clean off the other side. You throw it down. The drumstick you can't completely clean off, and I always feel yeah. guilty that I've left a little meat where I don't mean to leave a little meat. And I feel guilty for that.
0: I I'm with you on it. Uh, how do you eat the flats? Are you a one hand guy where you just like bite yes, down at the yes, top and rip it all yes. off? Or yes, okay. yep, no. Have question. you occasionally
1: depending de- de- depending on on you know I the, I, I will rip on occasion. Um, but, but yeah, usually it's just a one hand rip and go, man.
0: Yeah. I just, I just pull it off. I know I can usually pull them clean. You just bite down at the top and just pull it right. off with your right. teeth. But, uh, have you seen the new method that I keep seeing it online is like, it's going viral of people. They like push. down. I mean, they make their hands all saucy and messy, which bothers yeah, I me. I can't do that. Yeah, it bothers me. But, too. I can't either, but they like push down from the top and make it like a little umbrella at the bottom. And then they dip the, all the meats. Folded down at the bottom, and it become like this little umbrella to catch the dressing that they pick up with. I mean, it's a whole production and mess. I don't understand why they're going through all that work. I do. I do the same thing essentially,
1: but just in my mouth with my teeth. Yeah, I use it's usually a two a two prong one. You you dip a good half of it in there, rip it off, and then you dip the other half in there, rip the other out. Yeah. yeah, Oh yeah. Pretty
0: simple. We're eating those things the same way then. Yeah, and
1: you're getting all you're getting you're getting all the saucy good. That's what you want is the sauce. That's the one thing I do do like about the drumsticks, and I've told you this before. I just love uh buffalo wild wings medium sauce i could i could literally drink that i could, you could make that a cocktail for me and, and i would drink it the one thing i would do with drumsticks is even after i've cleaned it off there's still it feels like there's that little gristly thing at the end it's still worth dipping into the sauce even as you kind of gnaw on it because you're getting more sauce than meat so it, it's still pretty good it's a pretty good trade-off
0: skinny what are your must haves for your super bowl spread
1: um, it's those hanky panks for sure. Yep. A- and, um, we'll do some kind of probably skyline dip. That's usually what we would do.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Doug, one of my buddies is in a group text with me. Pointed <laughs> pointed out the idea buying, that- for
1: whatever reason, we're mozzarella stick people on that. We hardly ever eat them other than that day of the year for, maybe it's just, we, we buy a bunch of, you know, frozen, uh, snack items for lack of a better term. And so yeah, it's hanky panks wings. Um, uh, mozzarella sticks and then usually a skyline dip pretty simple are you a big
0: mozzarella stick guy i mean i know you just explained how often you I, eat I, them but
1: I, yeah i am I, I i i don't order them as much as i used to there's certain places that make them really really good certain places that don't um believe it or not I, i'll be honest with you the bait if you take the friday's frozen box ones the tgi friday's frozen box ones and bake them properly they are really good
0: i love cheese I, like, I can't get enough cheese on anything. I like mozzarella cheese. I hate cheese sticks. Really? Yeah, I've had the good ones. I've had White Castles. I've had all the ones that people recommend and say, no, you got to try the right ones. And I've, I've done all that. And I still don't like them. I never like, for whatever reason, just the the Mott sticks and marinara sauce do not do it for me. Never have,
1: never well, will. Here, here's what I do with the marinara sauce. Sometimes I'll, I won't even do marinara. I'll do a cocktail sauce with a little horseradish in it. I That was shrimp. Yeah. 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 I'm a big yeah. shrimp
0: guy. Yep. I was talking about uh, my buddy Doug Tiff who had texted and brought up the point that by like the middle of next week or maybe by this weekend or whatever, all of the Midwestern housewives are going to have seen skyline chili dip now on a national level. That is correct. So there's going to be a mad rush across the country this year for Super Bowl Sunday for cans of Skyline chili at all the grocery stores. Well, so you're I, going to I, see I, that spread across Facebook and Instagram.
1: I, I've done about three to five national interviews in the last two days at different stations across the country. And each one of them brought up what is the best way to eat it. And I told them about the dip and they didn't understand what I was talking about. I said, just Google it. You'll find a recipe and you'll thank me later for it. So we'll see if those people do it.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's going to be everywhere. It's a it's a great point And it's going to it's already like one of those things that's kind of um, cliche at this point around here. You know, I, I always say it's played out like you have Skyline Dip in everything you go to around here and everyone says they're obsessed but, with it. But,
1: but let me just tell you this. It is pretty damn good. It's good.
0: It's good. I, I mean, I do not just like it. I'll always eat it if it's an option, but it's definitely down my list of favorite dips at this point just because it's it's played out to me. I have it so often now. Um, But we're big dip people. Like I'm doing wings 100%, but the the number two thing for me is just dips. And I'm fine with just doing multiple dips. I don't even need other extra sides in there just give me like a it's queso fun. a guac and you know some fiesta ranch dip something like that
1: and it's funny because usually we have hanky panks about twice a year and this is one of the two times a year we have them and i love them but then we never make them again it's it's weird how you do that kind of stuff
0: hanky pankies are awesome but we don't even usually have that for the super bowl i never get those that's not a thing that's in my family rotation at all oh my, my not not my immediate family or the family I'm marrying into. So it's just not something that I come across, but I do love them at friends' houses when they have them. Yeah, they're outstanding. Uh, Oh, another food-related question here. It's your last day on earth, Skinny. What restaurant are you going to for all three meals and what do you order? For all
1: three meals, oh, yeah. Man. Which, can I, can by the I way, I don't
0: really do three I, meals very often. I, I, I eat too I, much. I,
1: yeah, I, was saying, I never eat three meals. Yeah, I'd um, weigh three hundred
0: pounds if I did that. Yeah, I
1: don't. A, I don't have enough time, and B, I'm kind of with you. I usually, I'm a big one meal guy, and then I might have a, a, a cup of soup or something as a second meal. I, a, the one meal I will eat is usually pretty good meal. So I got to go to the same restaurant for all three. No, no, okay. no. no.
0: I, you get to choose a different restaurant for each oh, meal. I think. Got, gotcha. Yeah, okay,
1: that's the way uh, I, I took it. Okay. I'm going to First Watch for for breakfast. Um, the biggest breakfast I can get. I love first watch breakfast. Um, I'll go and I don't go to this place that much. And I, and shame on me because I love Reuben sandwiches. I'd go to Izzy's for lunch. Wow. And have a giant corned beef sandwich and and a potato cake. And then for, for dinner, I'm going to Jeff Ruby's and getting the best steak humanly possible and just devouring that bad boy.
0: Okay. I like that. I think I would go to Mocha down here in Newport for a, get a grinder. For breakfast.
1: I'm not a big breakfast out guy, to be honest with you, but first watch is still my favorite.
0: Yeah. i I'd like some breakfast spots, but I'm like we talked about, I'm usually not doing all of the meals in a day. So the right. meal I usually skip is breakfast. Yeah, me too. Um, so yeah, I would probably do mocha and get a get a grinder, or if I'm choosing my favorite meal type for breakfast, it's probably sausage, gravy, and biscuits. So somewhere that has great that, but mocha is kind of my favorite spot. There, the go-to is the get a grinder. For lunch, I'm doing Rio Grande in Newport. And I'm getting a ground beef chimichanga.
1: And, it, and at this stage in real life, we'd both be dead.
0: <laughs> yes. And I'm absolutely just crushing chips and queso and guac.
1: Right. And you'd, and, and you'd be dead.
0: Yeah. And my sodium would be through the roof. And I, like you said, I'd probably be dead. But then for dinner to polish it all off and just send me into cardiac arrest, I would go to O'Brien's. And get the breaded, spicy garlic wings.
1: There you go. I know you love them.
0: Yep, it's outstanding.
1: <laughs> and at that point, you you would be dead. So you're right. If that's the last day on Earth, that okay. I'm dead at that point.
0: Yep, that's that's really drop
1: really the, fork, the only way to do it. Drop the fork and keel.
0: That's right. All right. Uh, I thought there might have been another question here on Twitter, but I'm not seeing it if there is. So okay. well, I don't think that's it. it.
1: You, you can always bank them for down the road. That's right. A reminder, we will not have a Bengals podcast this weekend, but we will talk extensively about the Super Bowl next week's midweek podcast. So be sure to join us then. For Rick Boring, I'm Richard Skinner. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly for three edition, presented by Ryan Keith.